Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is March 11, 2014, and this is episode 1317 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a cool one for you today. I'm going to talk about creating a backyard orchard, and it's not going to be permaculture. But it is. What I mean by that is I'm going to talk about nothing to do with the design sciences of permaculture and just how to make a bunch of food in your backyard. And then maybe some of you guys that don't like permaculture can trick you into doing it because it's going to kind of be the result. But it doesn't have to be. But it should be fun. And I think that this is kind of like a new school TSP with all of the knowledge that I've acquired over the years and an old school TSP where I used to do shows sometimes where I just tell you about a bunch of cool plants that you never heard of before. Uh, and that's what I'm going to do, both of those things today. Before I do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you and make sure the show's here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one today, jmbullion.com, the place I would go right now if I was going to buy some silver or gold right now this second. And I'd go there because I know Michael, the president of that company, will take care of anything that ever goes wrong. Like today I had somebody that said, hey, there was a couple pieces missing off my order. And uh, they're working it out for me, but I wanted to let you know. And I emailed Michael, and one minute later, I got an email back from Michael. I said, we will take care of this. I cannot expect that a company will never make a mistake. I can expect that a company will always make their mistakes right. That's what's happening right now from JM Bullion. It's what's always happened. It's why I can recommend them for the purchase of something so important to your investing, like physical silver and gold. Check them out today, JM Bullion. Dot com. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants, the guy that will teach you to use the other precious metal uh, effectively. That other precious metal is copper-jacketed lead. Check them out today, FortressDefense.com. And remember, if you can't travel to Indiana where Frank is, put together a group of guys, six, eight guys, and he will travel to you. He will make it an unbelievable experience. I have had nothing but the most positive feedback from every person that's ever worked with Frank and his cadre of instructors, every single person says the experience is amazing. Check them out today, FortressDefense.com. Next up, I want to tell you about one of our discount vendors. Remember, we have 12 sponsors, but we have over 40 companies, including sponsors, who do discounts for members of our support brigade. Today's discount vendor is Black Belt Magazine. How about 50% off a new subscription with a free gift? Check them out today. Uh, BlackBeltMag.com is the website. But when you order from them, make sure you go to the MSB. Unlike a lot of things where there's a discount code, there's a special link back there for you. Click that link and you'll see the special offer available only to MSB members. On that note, do consider joining the MSB or Members Support Brigade. That's how you support this show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. You get a lot of great stuff if you join the MSB, and again, you're supporting the show at 18.3 cents an episode, I do offer a service discount for military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, either active duty or prior service. All you got to do is uh, email me before you join with service discount in the subject line and uh, tell me who you are and what you're doing or what you did in a couple sentences, and uh, I will send you that discount code. You need to do that before, not after you join, though. Remember, for Member Support Brigade, if you don't want to join online with PayPal, uh, you can also join by silver or cash or 
check or money order by mail. And if you want to pay by Bitcoin, I do accept Bitcoin for the MSB. Uh, with that wrapped up, let's go ahead and uh, get into the year that is the episode. The year is 1317. Remember yesterday I told you about famine ripping, gripping Europe uh, and specifically England. Uh, when you have long cold winters that ruin production, it's certainly going to ruin production more in a northern cold climate than it will maybe in a more temperate climate. And uh, it really did hit England heavy. Um, you know, a volcano blew its top. Climate change actually happened without a Humvee. And uh, here's what's going on in England now in 1317. The price fixing of beer in the middle of a famine. The weather is easing up in England, and they've brought in some harvest over the summer, but it's not going to be enough. King Edward II is buying corn from southern Italy at exorbitant prices to feed his troops. It is unusual to transport food so far, but if you're willing to pay, it can be done. And England is willing. The price-fixing laws have failed, but the king persists in fixing the price of ale. It was three farthings for a gallon of poor ale. Now it will be one farthing for good ale. This will devastate brewers who bought the grain at high prices and now must sell at a loss. The government has learned nothing. Gee, the government didn't learn anything? What a surprise. Uh, here's uh, what we call the section My Take by Alex Shrugged, who puts these together for us at tspwiki.com. Oddly enough, it's not, absurd, it's, it's not absurd to make beer in the middle of a famine. It is one of the ways in the Middle Ages a farmer could convert grains into something preservable so he could sell. Uh, and given the intolerable conditions in England, and they were doing better than most, a good drink of a good drink was welcome. I have no proof, but one can guess that if no one that no one was obeying the price fixing law, they sure weren't going to obey the new law either. May God bless and keep the king far away from us. Uh, one, yeah, government doesn't learn. Number two, price fixing doesn't work. The market will rectify prices. People will either refuse to sell and refuse to work at a loss or they will sell to people who will ignore and pay what needs to be paid. That is how it works. The government cannot set a price on a market. It can subsidize the back end and create the illusion of a cost, and that's what government did learn how to do. The corn you buy cheap in your processed food is not the price you're paying. It's not cheap. You already paid for it on the back end with subsidies. That cuts the market price. But you can't actually fix a price. It's impossible. The money has to come from somewhere or people will not do the work. Now, beer. Let me tell you why making beer also wasn't a foolish thing to do with grain during a famine. People today make beer and we view the grain as such a low-cost commodity that after we're done with the grain, we throw it away. I guarantee you in a famine, they weren't throwing that grain away. It was being made into a porridge. It was being eaten. It was probably being rolled in with flour to make a grainy, like, bread uh, that it would have been good for. Some of it may have been fed to animals, uh, the leftover waste. Uh, but, but spent grain from a brewery is not really a waste product. It's had a lot of its nutritional value extracted, but quite a bit of it remains. And especially if it's not given as a sole source of, uh, of food, it can have quite a nutritional value. So in essence, you were able to split the nutrition from grain into two different areas. So you either ended up with a really high-quality livestock feed or a low-end gruel or then mixed with something else, something a human could eat. And uh, if you if you want to eat bread, and I don't eat a lot of bread anymore, but occasionally I do, taking spent grains from brewing 
and mixing a cup or two of them in with a traditional dough or a beer bread dough makes an awesome bread. Uh, makes me want to maybe go ahead and cheat a little bit right after we get back from California, brew up a batch of beer and make a batch of beer bread to go along with it. Anyway, let's get into the main topic of today's show. Um, I said this would be a mix of old and new school TSP, and it is because some of the things I'm going to tell you today are things that I learned like this week or over the last month, and some of the things I'm going to tell you are things that I've always known. And then the format of going through, I have 10 cool plants that many of you have never heard of that could go in your backyard orchards are, is really an old school formula. I used to do a lot of that back in the car because it was a great way to make an easy, informative, you know, 45, 50 minute show when I was in the car and had to do that. And it, you know, it was easy to learn about these plants and then make a bullet list and just read them off. So you're going to get all that put together today. But one of the things that's new to me, but very old school, is an understanding of how fruit was traditionally grown prior to World War II, from like the 1600s all the way up to the 1940s in England in what were called manor houses. Now, manor houses were where rich assholes lived. Uh, and they weren't necessarily all rich assholes, but that's the, that's the image that would come to mind if you understood the manor house. And in some ways, these were the very spoiled rich aristocracy of their day. These were people who were worth, in today's dollars, billions. Okay, They weren't worth billions then, but you didn't need billions to be worth billions then. A million dollars in 1900 was a lot of money. A millionaire in 1900 today would be worth about $24 million. So if you think about a millionaire today, it's a guy that's got some money. Right, but generally, even a guy with just a million dollars in cash can't really kick back and live a really like tycoon style lifestyle. The guy with twenty four million can really can uh, very safe conservative investments, a little bit of business ownership. A guy with twenty four million can do well. So think about this: a guy worth about four million dollars in nineteen hundred with one of these manor houses, the equivalent of wealth today would be about a hundred million dollars. And that's just on straight inflationary figures. In a lot of ways, a guy with that kind of coin back then had power that a person even with $100 million today would never have. And they had this desire to have the best of all things. And into that came the manor houses. And this was these rich people. They lived in London, mostly in England. They all had a place that they lived there. But they all wanted a place in the country. And they built these huge manor houses, multi-acre estates, a train ride, you know, a day's train ride or less from London. A couple hours by train, rail, outside. And on these manor house properties, they would employ several hundred people in total. A cook staff might be a head cook, uh, two assistant cooks, and then a staff of another eight or nine people just to cook food. They'd have a staff to clean the house, to do laundry. A lot of them had great big laundry facilities in them. And the other thing that they had was a walled garden. And a walled garden would generally be, on average, about three acres. An acre or more would be under glass house. The glass houses were heated with coal furnaces underground below the north wall of the property. They pumped hot piped water throughout all the glass houses. Because these people wanted things like peaches and plums and nectarines and melons to be produced in the cold climates of England. 
and they got it done. And there's a, a series called Victorian Kitchen Garden that goes into all these things that's really worth watching. Put out by the BBC. It's free on YouTube. It's not the best quality video resolution or whatever, but if you have like uh, Apple TV or uh, Android television or something like that, Google TV, and you put it up on a TV, it actually looks pretty daggone solid on a TV, and it looks pretty good on a computer as well. Um, but I just want to kind of inform you about the philosophy and the way these people were doing things before I talk to you a little bit about how they were growing fruit trees and how it kind of changes our paradigm on what a fruit tree is. In America, we've equated trees with great big giant things that shade houses that you could never reach up and touch the top of that kids climb and build tree forts in. This is a tree to us. And so we think of an apple tree would need to be like that, or at least, you know, a sizable thing that's, you know, 10, 12 feet tall. The concept that we might have apples on a tree that's six or eight feet tall, or four or five feet tall, without getting to some clever, you know, root, you know, root grafted stuff with super dwarfs or something, it's kind of foreign to us, but that's really not the case, and it's not how they did things. These guys did a lot with, you know, two-dimensional growing where they would take a tree up against a wall and they would espalier it uh, along that wall. And, like, the work they did back then was, like, so intense, so much more intense than anybody could afford to do today. Little nails that would hold the tree to the bricks. And when you watch this show, there's hundreds and hundreds of places that these little things have been driven into the into the masonry before. And it was a very painstaking process. And you would end up with this tree where the trunk was only three or four foot tall. The branches might go eight or nine feet across the wall, and they would have fruit hanging on them, you know, warming in the sun. And they might, on the, the north wall, uh, actually grow some, you know, the north-facing wall would get very little to no sun, and they grow cherries there. And then on the south-facing wall, grow things that were edgy like apricots and peaches. Then a lot of fruits got grown in the, in the greenhouses as well. And in this staff, there would be a staff of about 25 people just to run this walled garden. And there'd be a head gardener and his whole staff. And like the lowest guy on the run was the pot boy. Because he worked in, you know, in the cold, damp north wall, little potting room, filling pots with dirt. And the head gardener had like his own quarters. It was a nice house. And he was actually required to not live with other members of the staff, uh, to, to bunk up with other people, to have his very nice cottage. It was a symbol of status for him, and he was required to take it whether he wanted to do it or not. If you liked hanging out with the guys, that was fine, but you have to have your own quarters. It was an etiquette thing. And into all this, there came a lot of pride. One family having the best apples, one have, having the best peaches, and creating new varieties. And so these guys would be creating new varieties of apples by manually pollinating one tree to another. And they would take a feather... And they would use a feather as a pollinator. And they would cross two apples of known variety. And you say, well, you're going to grow that apple from seed. And then you're going to wait five, six, seven, eight years to see what kind of apple it produces. And if it produces a crappy apple, then you don't want it. No, that's not what they did. They would grow it from seed for a single season and get a pretty bushy little whip with a bunch of branches on it. And within one or two seasons from seed, they'd get a substantial little tree, and they would take cuttings from it, 
on you know wood that would be ready to fruit on a larger tree, even though it wasn't ready to fruit yet, and they would graft it. They would graft that wood onto a full rootstock that was already producing other apples. And in one season, that whip they would graft on would blossom, pollinate, and fruit. And within two years, they would be able to trial a new apple variety. And of course, they'd grown many of them and kept meticulous records. And when they found something good, they had seed stock for it, and they had the ability to grow out a bunch of it, and they had already grown quite a bit of it, and they would start grafting it and become their new variety. Now, the reason I tell you that is, one, to get you thinking differently about trees. But two, these were small trees. And they grew massive variety in these walled gardens. So, And, and this was such an intrinsic part to what, this, what these wealthy families did. that They would have to go to London at times for a couple, three weeks at a time and be in London. And the head gardener would stay and manage the garden with the gardening staff. The cook staff would go with the family, or a portion of the cook staff would go with the family to London and stay in their London quarters, and the gardeners would pack up a box of stuff every day and carry it down to the train station, put it on the train, and, and the family would have its own fresh fruit brought in by train. And as wasteful as that sound, the train was going there anyway, so it wasn't that extravagant. It was more it was extravagant in how it was produced. When you watch the whole series at the end, what you hear them say is like, no one will ever do things this way again. The intricacy of the glass house, the cost of the infrastructure, the cost of the labor, that this can't be done today in, in our modern society. But I think a lot of it could be done. And things like grafting apples and understanding small trees and flat against wall techniques and multiple plantings in one area, all of those things can be brought into modern times. So that means what we have to kind of look at, well, how does a tree work? If, if you don't have to have a tree be giant, even if it's on big, heavy rootstock, how does it work? Well, trees are not here to make us happy, right? Trees are here to be trees, to grow, to reproduce, and make more trees. They're a life form like any other life form. They reproduce like a goldfish does or like a, like a flower, You know, just a simple annual flower or like a virus or a yeast does. Like survival of their species is what their functionality is all about. So generally trees grow big because when they get big, they have large root systems. And with that large root system, they become very resilient. And they can produce lots of fruit. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of fruits on one tree. And that, tree, that fruit can fall. And animals will eat it, ingest it, and crap it out somewhere else and spread trees. And some fruits will just land on the ground and start to grow. And But they, they have such a small number that successfully reproduce, they need lots of fruit. They don't care if you really think that one is better than the other, other than do you think it's good enough that you would eat it, seeds and all, and poop it out somewhere. That's, their, that's it. That's their modus operandi. So what happens when a tree is kept small is eventually it says, okay, I still need to reproduce, here's fruit. So when we stunt a tree through pruning, we're not going to prevent it from fruiting. It's not like, and I think a lot of people feel this way, like an apple tree, especially on full-size rootstocks, has to get big before it'll make apples. And that's not the case. So trees work by the mechanism 
of their own desire for reproduction, not human desire. I don't think trees talk to us. I don't, you know, have long conversations with an apple tree, though you can actually learn some things if you'll talk to your plants a little bit, but not in the way where you actually expect an answer. And, and they don't think, oh, I'm going to do this now, but there is an intrinsic intelligence to all life. And understanding how to direct it is a big part of controlling the growth and getting the desired result. All right. In that, we have to think about balancing the top of a tree to the root structure below when we're planting them. So a lot of times what happens is people get a tree, and it's like a big, tall thing. And they think, oh, I don't want to cut all that growth down. And really, you need to be cutting that thing way back. There's a great video I've been talking about with New Mike on the blog today at Dave Wilson Nursery. I'll have a link to him for some other things as well in the show notes today. But watching that pruning video will forever change the way you think about um, pruning trees. It, it It's just enlightening. And you start understanding that when you go to these box stores, you see these poorly formed trees shooting way up in the air. As long as there's some structure below to work with, When they put those things on sale, buy them because you can turn them into wonderful trees. It's easier to start out with good quality, but even those, you can rehabilitate them. But what we want to make sure we're doing is we're cutting the top of the tree when we put a new tree out so that there's about the same amount of tree structure above ground as there's root structure below ground. And if anything, we'd want to go a little bit less above ground than what's below ground. And the reason for that is the roots are what feed the growth. And if you have a lot of infrastructure above ground and a small amount of infrastructure below ground, then the roots have to just work so hard to get leaves to come out. Where if you've pruned it back, the, the roots have horsepower now that can be applied to not just leafing out the branches that are there, but growing new ones. So that's kind of a way to think about that. And again, watch this video that I'll put out today to get more on that. The next thing is, when your trees start to produce fruit, We have a tendency to think about how many there are there, and I don't want to lose any. Okay, Thinking back to how trees work. Trees don't care if a bunch of their fruit ends up with you know, some worms in it, as long as the fruit produces a seed. They know that when it falls to the ground, animals will eat it, whether there's worms in there or not. The animals will see the worm is an extra you know, tasty treat. So the tree doesn't care. It's gonna let, it's gonna produce as much fruit as it possibly can. If you have two fruits sitting next to each other, really tight with each other, and they, they formed close to each other when they're little, they have, there's plenty of room, but as they grow, there's only so much room there. Even if they do well with each other, like there's enough room for them, if you have a thin branch and ten peaches on it, as those peaches get bigger and bigger and bigger, eventually what's gonna happen? The weight of the peaches are going to break the branch off the tree and damage the tree. The tree in the wild doesn't care. That just means a bunch of stuff went to the ground. Good. But you don't want that. So we have to think about thinning fruit. And each tree has kind of its own amount of thinning that needs to be done. But this is best done when the fruits are really small. Sometimes you'll have a tree start to fruit really, really young. Like second year. And it's okay sometimes to leave a fruit or two on there, but... It's really tempting to think, I'm going to get it right away. But, man, in that second, third year, it's best to actually pinch off all the fruit if it does set fruit. Because that means the tree will put all its energy into growth and establishment. 
But by third year, you can let trees fruit some, but you might want to thin a little more aggressively in a third year than you would in a fourth or a fifth or a sixth year. But don't be afraid to thin things out. Thinning out fruit is how you get lots of really good quality fruit. A lot of times people say I have a lot of pest problems, a lot of disease problems, and when you look at what they're doing, they're not thinning fruit. The other thing is when you're pruning, you don't just want the shape of the tree to be right. You want to prune out the tree enough that there's airflow through the branches and sun can get into these fruits. If fruits don't get enough airflow and sun, they ripen more slowly, they become more susceptible to disease and pests. So that's a big thing as well. The next thing that's really important with backyard you know, orcharding and building this type of thing in a backyard system is heavy mulch. To me, wood chips are the way to go. Wood chips take your system into a fungal state, which is what forest soils are. Pastures are generally bacterial-based soils. There's fungus and bacteria in both. Don't get that wrong, but it's the dominant. What is the dominant mechanism by which microorganisms process organic matter into fertile soil in a system? In a forest system, it's shady. It's relatively cool compared to an open field. It doesn't mean it's cold. It's cooler. You know when you go in a woodlot, it's cooler than standing out in the middle of a field in the summer. It's damper. It's moister. It's a thriving environment for fungus. When you move out into a pasture-based system, it's hotter, it's drier, fungus have a harder time surviving out there, and animals generally graze and defecate there, which creates a bacteria-rich environment. So you have a bacterial thing. So you could mulch with straw and things like that, and there's a big case for doing it in establishmentary uh, procedures and stuff with certain beds and swales and all that we won't go into today because that's a permaculture thing. But for a backyard, wood chips are cheap. They're easily available just about anywhere you go. They're affordable, and they do a great job. So heavy wood mulch. I'm talking four inches or more. With one thing you got to look at. I've seen people mulch trees, and they put the wood right up to the tree trunk, and they think, I want to hold all the moisture in. Well, the problem is you've created a wet, wood-on-wood, dead-wood-on-live-wood um, contact where the tree's root crown goes into the ground. And that can actually start to rot and damage the tree. So you want to pull the wood back from the trunk, at least a few inches larger than the trunk. The other thing that you see people do all the time with trees, and you might as well do nothing if you do this. I'm, I'm sorry, but it's the case. People take a tree, plant it in the ground in the middle of a field with nothing else around it so it can become a giant tree. And then they put a circle of wood around it or a square, a little square box, and they put wood mulch around it, you know, like for a couple feet. Okay. You've done almost nothing. Because there's so little mulch in coverage that even the area where the roots are below that mulch is going to dry out. You want to go at least four to five times the canopy of the tree. And not the canopy of the tree when you put it in the ground where there's no leaves on it. The canopy the tree will have by the end of the season, at least four to five times that. You're trying to create a reservoir down there. Now, the other shocking thing about trees, they have these roots, right? And those roots start growing out. So if you have this little square or little circle around your tree of, of mulch, Within a season, those roots are three, four, five feet away from that little circle. They're out in, in, in the open field, and if they're not well mulched there, there's not a lot of water there for them, and you're not creating a nutrient cycle as well. 
So mulch, 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 mulch. Again, four to five times the trees canopy. Now, if you have a clump of trees, then you take the area that the trees occupy and you go four to five feet outside of that, at least all the way around. And it would be good if you sheet mulched with cardboard first and then some soil and then maybe a layer of straw and then some more soil and then a layer of wood chips and then plant into that. That would be the bomb. But if nothing else, throw wood chips on the ground. Lots of them. Four inches deep. Keep them off the trunk. Now, what has that done for you? You're growing trees. Lots of them. You're growing some bushes and shrubs. And you're growing the trees, the bushes, and the shrubs. Kind of all about the same type of structure and size and height. You've got wood chips everywhere on the ground. You're irrigating because, especially during establishment, your trees need irrigation. They're leafing out and branching. You're pruning them. And what are you creating as a byproduct of what you're doing? Shade. You might want to try to keep everything open so all the trees get some sun, and you do. Keep some gaps in between them and prune out some interiors and let the sun in. But underneath the trees, it's quite shady. Low evaporation. The tree is helping itself conserve water through shade. The other thing is when you have lots of bush and tree canopy, it doesn't matter if it's not 20 feet in the air, even if it's 5, 6 feet high. It is a huge surface area when you start to think about it. And condensation forms on your trees. And the tree actually drips water to the ground. So every night and day as you go through cycles of humidity and dew drop, the tree is watering the ground for itself. That's how nature works. So what you end up with is a shady, cool place with lots of wood material in a fungal-dominated environment. Hmm, what opportunity does that present to us? Cultivation of mushrooms. Now, a lot of things like shiitakes really kind of do best if you, you know, use logs and put dowels in them and soak them and force fruit them and all. But two mushrooms that just do dynamite in that environment are oyster, and there's so many. There's blue oysters and white oysters, and but all oyster mushrooms. And wine cap, also known as King Strophoria. Now, if you take sawdust, um, spawn, which you can buy from many places of these varieties of mushrooms, and put them into these environments. Mix them into your wood chips. And then just let nature take its course. You're going to irrigate. It's going to be cool. It's going to be shady. You're going to get mushrooms. And you're going to put those mushroom species into a perennial status. Which means as long as you keep adding wood mulch and you keep everything going the way you're going to do it anyway, they're going to send out so much mycorrhizal. Because the mushroom is actually... The fungus mushroom is, is really the white, hairy stuff that you'll see under the surface. The, the part we call the mushroom we eat is really the fruit of the fungus. It's the reproduction. So you think of a tree, right? The, 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 the tree, the apple tree is the tree, and the fruit that comes on the end of what we call an apple is the fruit of the tree. Well, with fungus, the massive infrastructure of fungal network is the organism. And the mushroom you pick and fry up with delicious butter and garlic uh, is the fruit. So with that in mind, you're building this massive fungal infrastructure and network in your system, which is good for your trees. See, I'm going a little permaculture here on you. But this is just biology, really. But then you're getting the byproduct of another high-dollar crop. 
Oyster mushrooms and Kingstraphoria mushrooms are a high-dollar crop. And in a lot of your climates, if you do this right, as you get into a mature system, you'll get mushrooms of one kind or another spring, summer, and fall. You end up with a three-season mushroom crop. And you can put other species of mushrooms into this as well. Just Kingstraphoria and Oyster are really good ones to do. Um, you also want to think about getting some shrubs and vines and bushes into these systems. Not just for the seven-layer permaculture thing that I said I would leave alone today, and I will, but just because I can get certain shrubs and vines and bushes to produce high amount of production for me in the second year. So I get a quicker pathway to productivity. And when I'm pruning trees to four, five, six foot tall, a lot of my bushes are going to be in the three to four foot range. I kind of end up with everything kind of being like trees. I just have a tree that makes blackberries instead of a tree that makes mulberries. right? So you want to put some of those things in there. You also get a lot of advantages or a lot of opportunities with vines in these systems. When you're pruning a tree to six feet tall, if you take a muscadine grape and let it grow up that tree, it's going to swamp the tree. It's, it's too much. The tree can't handle it. But if you have a, a tool shed and you have a, a sunny wall on that tool shed and you screw a couple two-by-fours to the outside of that tool shed, paint them the same color as the tool shed so it looks good, get some lattice, which is cheap from Home Depot or Lowe's or whatever, and attach it to the two-by-fours and maybe paint it so it looks nice, or use the white plastic stuff if you think that looks nice, and you train kiwis or grapes or passion fruit up that wall, now you've got another yield and you've effectively taken no space. It's like free food at the once you've Once you've got enough out of it to pay for the plant, it's free. It hasn't even taken up space. It was otherwise wasted. Grapevines across fences and things like that. If you have some large trees on your property that you're not going to remove, when I say large, I'm not talking about 50-foot oaks. It's a little bit ridiculous to put a grapevine up that oak because you can't get to it. But let's say a large type of like a show maple or something like that, that's you know, 10, 12 feet tall, you're going to keep pruned into that range, putting a cowart muscadine on that is, is a great opportunity by adding a vine into your system. And you know, two years into it, you're getting a good yield of fruit. Now, some of it might get way up there where it's hard to get, and you might just say, yeah, the heck with it, but a lot of it you'll be able to harvest. And you don't have to get every drop of everything. Leave some of it way up there for your birds. Let them eat that. They'll leave your other fruits alone. So, so think about how you can integrate these things into what you're doing and not just do trees, even though we're talking about back, backyard orcharding. Oh, and I, I want to back up real quick before I go forward about the mushroom thing, uh, some cool stuff you could do. So I went to Mushroom Mountain, and I got a bunch of Kingstraphoria and oyster mushroom spawn. I also got what they called a coffee kit, a coffee mushroom kit, which was just basically ended up being, it wasn't really a kit, it was a one-pound bag of, uh, of uh, oyster mushroom spawn. And then the instructions are basically you take a, a big jar, like a big giant jar, and you put your coffee grinds in there after you make a cup of coffee, and then you sprinkle some spawn on, and then you, you put the lid on the jar. And you keep doing that till the lid's all the way full, or till the jar's all the way or almost full. And when it gets there, then you, you don't put the lid on it tight anymore. You prop the lid to the side to keep it moist and from drying out, but to let air flow in. And then all of a sudden it'll fruit these big giant oyster mushrooms. And then you can pick that fruited mushroom and use it and wait, and you can get it to fruit two or three times if you're patient. Well, then what most people do is go, okay, well, it's done, and they, they get rid of it. 
But it's not. What you've actually done is you've multiplied the mushroom spores by like a kabillion, right? What you actually have now is a jar full of mushroom spawn. That's The reason it's not fruiting anymore is it's pretty much used up all of the, the value that it can get from the coffee grinds. It needs more food. So if you take that material and spread it out into your mulched gardens or mulched orchards, then you'll cultivate mushrooms outdoors. So this is a way we can take the coffee grinds, turn them into a highly valuable compost, and propagate more mushrooms. It's an awesome, easy thing to do, and I wanted to add that in. Um, I also want to say real quick, I've changed my view a lot on multigraph trees to a positive view. I never really liked them. Uh, Dave Wilson Nursery has a lot of cool tips on things like I'm talking about today, including that video I mentioned. But they also are big on propagating these trees. And what I've started to realize is like when you go to Stark Brothers Nursery or something like that, and you see a lot of these multigraph trees, fruit cocktail trees they call them, they're actually reselling for Dave. And I just went out to tour Bob Wells Nursery, um, which was awesome, by the way, uh, in Lindale, Texas, and picked up an order of about 45 trees. And anyway, he, he really wanted us to take a look at the Dave Wilson stuff. And uh, we saw a lot of cool, like, hybrid things that, like, I just really wasn't into it. Now that I see them, I want to add some to what I'm doing, like plucots, which is like a plum and apricot cross. But I also looked at his multigraph trees. And the quality of what I saw and how healthy the grafts were on these trees Um, the thickness of the trunk, the thought that goes into one of his trees as to shaping it properly with the multigraft was very evident. And I'm like, we got to figure out where and when we're going to add some of this stuff to what we're doing because it's awesome. And it does let a person in a backyard, you know, have this tree that has plums and apricots and peaches on, on you know, one tree. Uh, they have one that actually has five. They call it a fruit cocktail. And uh, this tree has on it a peach. Uh, th- th- well, I'm looking at one here. It's got two pe- two different peaches, a nectarine, a plum, and an apricot, all on one tree. Uh, and another one that also has a peach, a nectarine, another peach, a plum, and an apricot. Um, really interesting things that you can do. Uh, I'm looking at one right now, a semi-dwarf with four different pears. Uh, a peach nectarine cross, so you've got some peach and nectarines on the same tree. Uh, I've seen cherries, uh, for instance, a cherry tree that has black tartanian, bing, lapins, and van all on one tree. Um, and here's a couple things about this. One, it's neat, it's unique, it's novel. You do have to take some care in pruning to not let one variety dominate the others, but it also solves a cross-pollination issue. So it's less important now that I have four apple trees if I have an apple tree with four apples on it. And if I bring in some other apple trees, I've got some cross-pollination things going on beyond just two varieties. Uh, so it, it does that, but again, it was really what's possible in the care that goes in. And I can't say that for every provider of multi-budded stuff, but the Dave Wilson nursery stuff that I looked at out of Bob Wells was absolutely awesome. On that, if you are anywhere near Lindell, Texas, go to Bob Wells Nursery. Don't just order from him. Go there. Um, he's got stuff that's not on his website. I'm pretty sure of it. Or maybe I just didn't have enough time to go through the website in depth. 
There are things there that are amazing. The man is wonderful. His staff is wonderful. Um, when they dug our bare root trees for us, a couple of them got a little, they weren't bad. I would have sold them to a customer, but they had a little bit of rough up on them where they got rubbed against some other trees. He said, keep those. Here's two to replace them. Um, just awesome people. An amazing facility. And if you are not in Texas and thinking, well, you know, I don't need Texas varieties. I need Pennsylvania varieties or whatever. They have everything. They ship all over the country. He's been in, in the nursery business for six year or six generations. He's a sixth generation uh, nurseryman. And uh, he's got incredible knowledge and just an incredible ethic in taking care of customers. So Bob Wells Nursery has my highest recommendation. By the way, when we were out there, we did shoot some video of his operation, an interview with him, some of these trees that I'm talking about. We'll probably put that video out on Thursday while I'm at Permaculture Voices. Tomorrow, I'm going to have a video for you that is a 90-minute walkthrough of my entire property. Um, really, really awesome stuff to see what we've done so far. And some secret information at the end that you won't quite know what we're talking about. But it'll leave you wanting more. I'll leave it at that. Anyway, so the multigraph trees, I have really become to take a positive view of. I want to go through some stuff you could plant now that you probably don't see a lot or think you can grow. Or even if you've heard of it, you've never really thought about growing it. You probably don't have a neighbor growing it or what have you. The first one is the jujube. The jujube is also known as Chinese date. And I am now fascinated about this, this plant, this tree, and the varieties that are available. The most popular varieties in America have always been Li and Lang. And the Li is the one that you eat fresh, unless I've got this backwards and then it would just be flipped around. But the one variety is really good for eating fresh, and it, it comes on and sets its fruit and ripens first. And then the Lang is a variety that will set fruit a little, will set fruit about the same time, but ripen a little later. And it's not as good for fresh eating. And you leave it on the tree and it dries like a date. And it's sweet like a date. I mean, it's like 47% sugar when it's dried. The uh, one guy that I'm going to give you a video link to today actually says they use them in their turkey stuffing like dates. Which I've never heard of dates in turkey stuffing, but it's probably pretty good. And the, the, the flavor is closest to anything else would be an apple. I mentioned yesterday about this fruit. Huge, huge demand. In the Oriental market, specifically the Chinese niche market, um, it's a neat tree though in a lot of ways. There's there's quite a few varieties um, beyond the Li and the Lang. There's three or four varieties mentioned in this guy's video. I'll put a link to today. His name is Roger Meyer. He's out of Southern California, and this tree is also thorny, and it's very easy to propagate. It sends up root suckers, and if you don't want them, you just cut them off. But if you wait till the tree goes dormant. You can dig those suckers out, cut limbs off of your, your tree that's growing, graft them to the rootstock, and you've got a cash product as well. Because these trees sell for $30 to $40 a tree. And again, a very unique thing. You're not going to see jujube uh, you know, in every other backyard. Uh, and then the fact that the one variety dries on the tree and becomes pretty much infinitely storable at that point. And it seems to me that that, you know, dried jujube rehydrated would be a good brewing or meat ingredient. So it's a long-term storable ingredient that can be used in alcohol, uh, product as well. So jujube, check it out. Seaberry. Seaberry is something that I always thought was kind of neat. 
I don't know if it's going to work for me. It's hot here. It's very hot here. Um, Seabury is hardy into zone two. But when I went to Ben Falk's place, he was experimenting with all these different varieties of Seabury. And the plant, it gets tall. It gets six, seven foot tall, but it's narrow. You can plant a lot of them in a small space. And that's good because you need a male to every four or five females. I think they say one to eight. But from people I've talked to, you're better off at like, if you want good fruiting, one male to, you know, two to four to five females. And there's all these different varieties of this stuff. And it's like a passion fruit, orange tasting thing. You can eat some of them fresh. But when it was made into juice, it had an incredible flavor, even unsweetened. And sweetened with a little honey would be even better. But it was a plant, and the only way I can describe it is when you drank a little bit of the juice, you thought to yourself, oh, wow, that's good for me to drink that. There was a tonifying medicinal quality, not a medicine taste, okay? Because a medicine taste is, you know, the whole Mary Poppins spoonful of sugar to get the medicine down and all. No, 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 no. That's not what I mean. Your body intrinsically knows when you consume this that it's good for you. I, I can't describe it any other way. I hope I can grow it. I know Ben's kind of going into the business of selling Seaberry and Seaberry products uh, because it has that quality. And it's something that's very well known in Northern Europe that we just don't really know about here. It also fixes nitrogen. So I'm not going to go too much into permaculture, but just let's say you have to fertilize stuff sometimes, whether it's organic or you know chemical, which I don't advise. And nitrogen is one of the key nutrients that your plants need. And seaberry makes it on its roots, and when you prune it, some of those those things pulse off the roots and become available to other plants. So it's good for you, and it's good for your garden. It is thorny as all get out. And there's some tricks if you start learning to do simple. Like grafting seems like some kind of alchemy, hard, complicated. You cut two sticks, you put them together, you put tape around it. It's a little more involved in that, and it's important to do certain things at certain times, and some things can graft one way and not the other, and there's different cuts, and there's different tools. But in the end, it's putting two pieces of wood together and, and taping it up. Anybody can learn to do it. So one thing, and it's a little complicated when they've got these big thorns on them, but what Ben started doing was grafting some male tips onto his female sea berries so that there's pollination right there, So you get great cross-pollination, and you don't have to take up space with a male plant. So that's another thing you can kind of learn to do. The next plant I want to talk to you about today is pawpaw. You hear Jeff Lawton in the tropics talk about custard apple. Pawpaw is a North American custard apple. It kind of tastes like a mixture of banana and vanilla pudding in a fruit. Like you cut it open, it's got these big seeds, you pluck the seeds out with a spoon, and then you're eating like a vanilla banana custard out of the fruit shell, and you throw the the, the rind into the composter. How cool is that? It's a, it's a pudding tree. It's a custard tree. It looks like a tropical plant. It's got these big oval leaves on it, and it has this reputation of not it's like taking forever to mature in fruit. This is because people understand that pawpaw is a subcanopy tree. I am going a little bit in the layers, but not deep. What that means is a tree that grows in a forest in the shade of other trees. And it's remarkably productive in that environment. That's good, so it'll produce in shade. But if you plant a young pawpaw, when it's trying to establish itself, and it doesn't get good sun during establishment, 
it is not, it's gonna, it will, it will survive. It will grow very slowly and it'll take five to ten or more years to fruit. If you plant a pawpaw tree in a place where it gets good sun so that it can get four or five years of good sun before it gets shaded out too much. And if you're pruning stuff the way we're talking about today, it ain't gonna matter. It ain't even ever gonna be too much in the shade. Then it will fruit in three years or less sometimes. And it's remarkably productive, and it's one of those things that you don't want too many of because it's really a fresh-eating thing, and you can only eat so many of those things. But, yeah, how about being able to see your kid, like, I want pudding here, here. Cut this open and eat it. It's it's a banana vanilla custard fruit. I mean, it's insane to think that this is a native North American plant that most people have never heard of. Pawpaw. Check it out. The next one I have for you, Cornelian Cherry. Now, one of the most popular trees in in the world, honestly, is an ornamental or dogwoods. And you can understand why. They're really easy to prune in like anywhere between five, six, eight feet. And you see them like at in, in Washington at the National Mall, lining both sides, pruned out about six to eight feet. Beautiful structure. They live a long time. Really neat looking bark structure, so they even look kind of pretty in the winter when their leaves fall off. In the, the spring, the blossoms on dogwoods are gorgeous. Beautiful flowers. Just billions of them. And then they leaf out, and the flowers drop, and then it's a very pretty tree. And then it falls off and the whole cycle repeats itself. And it's easy to maintain. It's hardy. It grows to a nice size without being too big. Um, it looks good in all four seasons. What if it was edible? What if it produced, what if that tree could be made to produce, oh wait a minute, they made those trees, in many instances, to stop producing fruit. There's some native dogwood in America that produces a little bit of fruit, and it actually doesn't taste bad, it just doesn't produce a lot. But in the Mediterranean region, like Greece, and um, if you think around like where Sparta was and places like that, There were dogwoods that were native to those areas that produced fruit that was pretty good. And then the people of the time like started selectively breeding those trees, and they became known as Cornelian cherry. And there's two main species in this, this world, this edible dogwood world, and one is called Cornus moss, C-O-R-N-U-S-M-A-S, Cornus moss, and the other one is called Cornus cusa. And it's Cornus, K-O-U-S-A, Cusa. Sometimes called Big Apple Cusa because the fruits it produces are a little bit bigger and a little more apple-y than cherry-like. The Cornus moss produces both varieties of red and yellow fruit. And there's lots of varieties of these trees. And they do everything a dogwood does except produce these little cherry fruit things that you can pick and eat. And make into delicious jellies and meads and wines and beers. And use in baking and just eat fresh out of hand. And you might wonder, like, is it worth it? Well, in, you know, like, let's say, kind of the biblical and, and early times, like the three, the, you know, the, the first couple centuries uh, throughout the Roman Empire and throughout many areas in the Mediterranean, this was a commercial crop at one time. It was grown heavily as a commercial crop, and as other fruits and, and things became known that produced larger fruit, 
they kind of ebbed out, but they're still growing a lot in and around Greece and what have you. You might think, well, I don't have a climate like Greece. These things are hardy in a very northern climate. I believe six to five-ish. And they all the attributes of a dogwood tree. And an edible thing that's awesome. And I've eaten a few of them because I had a few up in Arkansas that fruited just a few. And man, are they good. So I have a bunch going in down here. The next one I want to talk to you about is mulberry. And most people have heard of mulberry, and you know, there's lots of different kinds of mulberry. Um, but there's a variety of mulberry called bush or dwarf mulberry that generally has not been considered that great of a food product. It's been cultivated a lot uh, for silk production and things like that. Well, there's now a dwarf mulberry, and the scientific name is Morris alba Issei. I-S-S-A-I, Issei or Issei. I can't pronounce Latin very well, and no one really knows if you're right or not because all the people that spoke Latin are dead. Uh, but Morris Alba Issei is a dwarf mulberry. When I say dwarf, I mean you could have a little pot, like a two-gallon pot sitting on uh, a picnic table with this plant growing in it about the size of a typical house plant, and it will produce berries intermittently all season long. That means it'll get berries, you eat them, it'll get more berries, you eat them, it'll put some more berries on, you eat them like that, and you're not really sure of, it's kind of a cycle through. If you plant it in the ground and let it root out a bit, it will grow into naturally about a six-foot bush, and it can be pruned into any shape, size, or dimensions you want. Now, the thing about mulberries, even though some mulberry trees get massive, I mean huge trees and very fast-growing, a mulberry tree is one of the easiest trees to train and control the size of that there is. So there's lots of other mulberry out there. There is some white mulberry. Now, there are white mulberry, like, so the dwarf mulberry is actually commonly called white mulberry, even though it doesn't have white berries. This is why people like to use Latin names when they get into be, you know, plant geeks because these confusions exist. But there are actually some varieties of mulberry that have white berries. Sweet lavender is one. Beautiful day is another one. Some are just marketed as white mulberry. These are awesome as well, and I'll throw them as like a bonus plant because not only can you control all the height and everything like that, but if you live in suburbia, one of the reasons you might do these dwarf mulberries is so you don't have a great big tall tree, lots of birds eating it, pooping purple stuff on your neighbors and making them upset with you because the trees are down lower, so you're going to have less bird issues. But if you wanted a bigger tree, a little higher up, and you had these white colored mulberries when they're ripe, then you've got another fruit yield that doesn't stain. Then there's also a Pakistan mulberry, really long mulberry, and this is a red-black mulberry, and in theory this doesn't stain, though I've never tested it and I don't understand how it wouldn't, but the literature says it doesn't, so that's another thing to think of. Now here's what's awesome about mulberry. I'm going to teach you how to propagate mulberry right now. Take a cutting of a mulberry branch, the end of a mulberry branch, cut it off, Dip it in rooting hormone, stick it in moist soil, and keep it moist. 99% of the time, that thing will root and produce a new tree. It is that easy. There's better times of year to do it. There's a little bit better skills to do with it. But it's one of the easiest plants in the world to propagate through cuttings. It's also a good forage plant, not just with berries, but animals like goats and sheep and cattle like the leaves. So it's a good, what they would call in medieval times, a tree hay tree. right? So you can cut branches of mulberry and feed them to your ruminants. Um, 
So it's got just all of this stuff going for it. It makes good wine. It makes good jelly. It's good for fresh eating. It makes good cobblers if you're the cobbler kind of person. And it can be propagated over and over and over and over again. So check that one out. Elderberry. Elderberry is another medicinal. Uh, Nick Ferguson from Permaculture Classroom, who helped me tighten up a little bit of my design decision-making on our Zone 4 food farce we'll be planning the first week of April, talked me into making this one whole section, just a clump of mulberry. And he was just like, put, you know, Nova and York, which are two well-known varieties of, of mulberry. And I went out and got like four different kinds of mulberries because his, his, his comment to me was, it's the most important medicinal you'll grow. And it may be because I may not be able to grow the sea berry. I may not be able to get it to work. But he's right. Elderberry is an incredible medicinal. It's also an incredible thing for wine. Um, it does well in almost every part of the United States. There's an elderberry that will grow well for you. It's pretty carefree. It's kind of bushy. And it's not necessarily the best thing in a backyard, but there's probably a corner or a fence somewhere you can plant a clump of mulberry. It also can make these, and again, this is cheating from paleo, but you know, you gotta live once in a while. If you take, when mulberry flowers, it flowers in these like flat pancake looking heads. And you can cut that whole head of flowers off, the elder flower, and you batter it and kind of do it like a pancake. Oh my god. That'll make you break paleo. I mean, seriously, it's, it's, it's an amazing plant in so many ways. It's also, a plant that's very easy to propagate from cuttings. Because it's so hardy, it's a good gorilla gardening plant. So if you have areas around your neighborhoods with vacant land and stuff, and you wanted to make up some cuttings of that and stick that in the ground and let it go kind of wild, I'm just saying. I know some areas people say, oh, that's invasive, whatever. It's invasive medicine, right? I'd rather have invasive medicine than, than government medicine any day. Uh, so elderberry, something to definitely consider. Another plant is called Honeyberry. Honeyberry has flowers that are very similar to honeysuckle. They're the same family. Um, it grows honeysuckle-like. A little more bush and a little less vine, but very similar to honeysuckle. Great flowers, smell good, lots of bees. Honeyberry. What is a honeyberry? It looks like a blueberry, except it's long. It's like a long, ovate-shaped blueberry. And it has a blueberry-like flavor, but a lot of sweetness and almost a honey character to it. These will grow in most of the country. I'm a little bit south for this. My winters are kind of in keeping with what you want, but my summers are so harsh. This is another one of those things we're going to try and see if it works. But honeyberry, something to consider. Now, nuts. It's pretty easy to dwarf a fruit tree. It really is. It's not hard. Dwarfing a walnut Dwarfing a pecan, dwarfing any of these, these big nut trees is a lot more difficult. You can keep a pecan 12, 14 feet, but that's a big tree. That's not, that's not what I would call a backyard orchard tree, you know. And, and, and nuts also had a tendency, especially the pecans and the walnuts, uh, hickories to have a thing called juglone, uh, or juglone that is a chemical that's allopathic, meaning it suppresses the growth of other plants. So now you've got a big tree that takes up a lot of space that kind of kills stuff around it. So unless you have a sizable yard, that's kind of out. So what can we do with nuts? Um, if you're in the south like I am, you and anywhere you could do chestnuts, and you can do Chinese chestnut and keep them more bush-like, but they're still pretty big. But there's a thing called a chingapin, and this is basically like a little chestnut. 
and they're native to like the swamplands of like Georgia and the Carolinas and northern Florida and eastern Alabama, places like that. So that means heat, no problem, as long as they get moisture. So they like heat, and they can grow with a, a, a dappled shade. They can grow in sun, and they produce this awesome chestnut-like little nut. In fact, it pretty much tastes like a chestnut. It's pretty much a mini chestnut that's resistant to chestnut blight. So it didn't get wiped out like all the chestnut trees did during the chestnut blight in the early 1900s. So these are a great small... Now, they're bushy, and you've got to do a lot of pruning to keep them from getting too bushy on you. But there's a nut plant that you can put in your backyard nursery. The other nut you can do is hazelnuts or filberts. A hazelnut can be a big tree, but it can be pruned into a hedge. It can be pruned very small, and it'll still produce. It's another one of those things I'm trying. We'll see how it works out. So we're going to give the hazelnuts a shot. But you folks that are further north, um, where chingapin may be not quite as hardy, can definitely do hazels and keep them small. And that's another really great crop. And that takes you into the world of protein production from a tree. And it's something we really need to look at trying to add into what we're doing if we're going to stay heavily with perennials is how we can get in some carbohydrate or, or, or protein-based stuff into our production because fruit is mostly fructose, is mostly sugar. Um, and then what about citrus? Right? Everybody wants to grow citrus. I don't know about everybody, but a lot of people want to grow citrus. And you look at people in South Florida and you're like, you freaking jerk. Or South Texas or Southern California. You can grow oranges and grapefruits and tangerines and kumquats and all these wonderful things. And I can't grow that. You'll die. Well, there is a citrus for us in the more cool temperate climates. And it's called a loquat. And loquats, many of them are hardy into zone 7 solidly into zone 7. Sometimes with a late frost, you might not get a lot of fruit because they fruit, you know, citrus fruits in the winter. So if you get a late frost, it could, you know, or a really early frost, sometimes it can kill your buds, but um, they are doable. So loquats, I thought I'd throw in. And then another bonus that's not on my list here in my notes is avocado. Um, I learned of two... Avocados. One is called Mexicola, and the other is called Brazos Bell at Bob Wells Nursery. I ended up buying extra trees because he told me about them during the interview that I did with him. I'm like, wow, I didn't know that that was possible in Zone 7. He goes, yeah, they need some protection sometimes, but they're hardy down to about 18 degrees or lower. Uh, so they, they handle Zone 7 fairly well. And the smart thing to do is to keep them pruned like a backyard orchard style so that you can put a, you know, a, a row cover type or, or frost cover blanket over them on really, really cold nights. But give them good solar exposure, lots of mulch to protect the roots, and, uh, and, and look after them when you get these frosts, and they will survive even in Zone 7. I'm a little iffy. I'm like 7B. I'm not quite 8. I'm not sure it's going to work, but I'm going to give it a shot. Uh, I may do some in some pot, pots as well. I want to talk a little bit about potted trees as well. We have a tendency in America to think in binary code, on or off, one or zero, yes or no, potted or in ground. And then so we have a tendency to think that, you know, if we live in a place where I can't grow citrus or I can't grow figs or I can't grow pomegranate uh, or I can't grow coffee, right, that I either do this in a pot or I, I don't do it at all. Well, really, if you think about it, it's not that you can't grow those things. It's that there's a period of time 
when they can't survive the outdoors. And they either need to be in a greenhouse or inside your home. And what that means is once you know you're past your frost window, or even where you have a plant that can handle a little bit of frost but not a heavy frost, you're at least past your heavy frost window, you can take that pot and put it straight out into the middle of your garden and make it part of the system and let it be there and let it function as part of the system. And then when it needs to come back in, you can simply bring it back in. And then you might have this nebulous period where you don't want to carry it all the way to the middle of the yard, so you kind of put it on the porch during the day and you bring it in at night. You put it on the porch, and it's a little bit of work, but it's not that big a deal. You put it on casters and make it easy for yourself or whatnot. And that's a big part of what we're going to do. We're going to put some citrus into what we're doing. And we're also going to do coffee. Now, the thing about coffee is it does really well in shade. It's a dappled understory plant. So we're going to have what we're going to call the coffee pots. So you have coffee plants that go right out into our urban garden that are right in there with the irrigation so that they, they don't dry out in the shade, doing wonderful as though they were growing in the ground, but able to bring them in when they need to be brought in. And you can do that with your citrus as well or little, you know, rare things like avocado or fig. Not really rare, but unusual for your climate. So that's something that you can do as well. Um, I want to kind of sum this up with some final thoughts. I know that some of you like get weary of the permaculture thing, which is why I made this show really like I could have done this show without knowing permaculture. I just brought in some unique viewpoints and some knowledge based on my permaculture background into them to make things work a little bit better together. But this is, you can go out, plan out where you want to plant everything, bring in a bunch of mulch, and as long as you've got irrigation or live in the right kind of climate, just plant a bunch of trees. And the beauty of that is I think it's less intimidating for some people. Um, the pruning, I think, is something you can learn in a couple days. And then you can get better as you go. And if you just think of keeping the tree to where you can reach all the parts of it and not letting it get away from you, or some areas where you do want it to be a little taller, get some lopper pruners. So they make these pruners that are just basically like a lopper pruner, but they're on a pole. So you can reach up and prune it 8 to 10 feet and, and keep some of your bigger specimens still under your control. And... In doing that, you can do a lot for yourself. Number one, yes, if there are problems in our food supply, having food produced on your site is awesome. So it's a security thing. But the second thing is, I am not big on eating fruits and vegetables from the store. When they come out of the ground and you're eating them right away fresh, it's a different experience. And I think that it's a lot healthier for you as well. So I think there's a quality of life and quality of health that goes with food growing on your property that, that increases the value of your life. The next thing is your property values. You know, this type of thing can be done and really brought into heavy, full-on productivity in four to five years. And imagine you now have to sell your house for whatever reason. You decided to move. You came into some money. You want a bigger house. I don't care what it is, but you want to sell your house. And somebody is looking for a house, and they have a price range. Let's say $175,000, right? And they're looking at three-bedroom, four-bedroom houses in your neighborhood and around there. And they're going to look at basically the small group of houses because they're going to look people that are going to buy a $170,000 house don't unless they have a, a stupid agent. Don't generally look at two hundred fifty thousand dollars houses, and they don't look at a lot of hundred thousand dollars houses. They look in their price range. So all of the stuff they're going to look at is pretty equal, and they're going to find the thing 
that's best that they can get at their budget. That's how people buy houses. It's a it's a process of elimination. Here's what's available, and these are all the ones I definitely don't want. These are the contenders. Now let me eliminate the last one or two, and I'm going to pick one. Now, <laughs> you're going to buy a house like that, and you go find this house with 40 different varieties of fruits growing in the backyard. There are a few people that would say, that's not what I want. That's too much work, or I don't like it, or whatever. I want green grass, and that's it. The majority of people in today's market are going to gravitate toward that house, and they'll pay a little more for it. So it makes your house more marketable and worth more money. That means you're investing in your property, not just yourself, your family, and your lifestyle. Um, and then I just think there's a piece to this that can't be quantified. Even if you're not ever going to get into permaculture the way I talk about it, at the scientific level or anything, and having something like this to come home to. You've had a busy day, what have you. You walk out in your backyard. You're surrounded by beauty, the sounds of animals and nature, even in the suburbs. You look at a tree. It's got this one limb that just doesn't look right. You go pick up your pruners. You walk over. You prune it off. You, you don't bag it up. You just throw it on the ground, and you look around, and... You look over and there's a couple raspberries that are fully red and you pull those off. And maybe you have a cold beer you picked up on the way out to the backyard and you pop a couple raspberries and have a sip of a cold beer and you sit down and you just look around. And you start to realize, like, whatever it is I have to do to be able to have this place for myself and my family, maybe it's actually worth it instead of just feeling like this place is nothing but a sink into which my money goes. Because that's what most Americans' homes have become. They've become consumers of their wealth. They tell you it's an asset, but you have to pay for it for 30 years, and you're 40, and you just bought it. So that means you have to pay for this thing until you're 70. You might be dead by then. And then you start looking at what does it take out of you. And like every weekend in the summer, at least, you're out there bah, pushing a mower, or you're paying somebody to do it for you. And what does that grass give you? It gives you nothing. And then it starts to look like crap, so you have to water it. And it's very water-thirsty, and it's very nutrient-thirsty, and it doesn't produce any of its own nutrients, so it doesn't do anything for you. So all it requires is more inputs. So now you're hiring a company to come in and fertilize it, or you're spreading you know, scots on it, and you know it's toxic to you and your family and your animals and your neighbors, but hell, it's got to be green, right? And, and that type of life just wears you out. Where what I'm talking about actually has quite a bit of work, but you can phase it in over five or seven years. It can be a little work one weekend or two weekends a month for the next couple of years, and all of a sudden it just starts to take on a life of its own. And then you have this oasis. And this is what's possible in regular plain Jane yards. If I didn't have the means to be out on a three-acre property, and I was looking for a suburban property today, I would try to find something in the quarter to third of an acre range, which is bigger than most, but very doable. And I know with that, I could have two or three hundred varieties of plants producing edible things for me and my family on that piece of property. But I could still leave lots of pathways and spaces for dogs to run and do their thing. I could even have a little chicken coop if I wanted to, and a little rabbit hutch or a little quail hutch if I wanted to. But even if I didn't do that, even if I just managed the yard, I know how much I could do with a space like that. And I know it's pretty amazing. And I could still even have a pretty good open space, like to throw a ball or kick a ball or play with the dogs. 
And when, when you start to think about all the edge opportunities, if you put a pool in, there's an edge around the pool. You've got a fence, you've got an edge. You've got, a, you've got an edge along your wall of your house. And if you think about the way the average backyard is done today, you've got a house, half of it sits in the front yard, half of it sits in the backyard. Usually there's a privacy fence that comes up on both sides of the house, and then these two fences turn in and cut the house in half. So then you've got these little pockets in the backyard. And you, you know, let's say your house is facing north-south, Well, now you've got an east little pocket and a west little pocket. You've got morning sun overhead and then shade all day, and you've got western heat wall shade most of the day, but intense sun. But then you've got shade from the fence, and then you've got that edge. And there's all these little pockets that you can create these little micro forests in. And I'm just asking you what you'd rather come home to. A big green open space you have to mow and edge and weed eat. Or an area like that with pockets of trees and bushes and shrubs and vines mulched under four inches of wood chips with no grass to mow. Where you can go out and pick an apple today, a berry tomorrow, some mushrooms to go with your steak the next day. And what makes more sense? And how can we live in a nation with so much opportunity compared to other nations to produce our own food and so few people ever choose to do so, especially in the way that I'm talking about today. I mean, when you start to think about all of the money that goes into growing fruitless mulberries and, and, and fruitless pears, if you think about all the park spaces with all these trees that are pretty, yes, but productive, no. And all the opportunities that exist to really make something happen that's so useful to ourselves and to our children and to our communities at large. And what would it mean if we just did this in 10% of the backyards in America? I'll tell you what it would mean. It would mean we'd do it in 50 or more. If 10, one out of 10 people in America transformed their backyard this way, it would create a contagious, infectious, positive disease, an illness, an infection that would spread. And, and people would start looking in the guy's backyard. He's sitting back there on Saturday afternoon grilling some dogs or some bratwurst. And he ain't fired the lawnmower up in six weeks except to cut the little patch in the front yard and the little patch in the backyard. And everybody's chilled out back there in the shade. And the guy next door is out there with a leaf blower and a, a lawnmower choking on grass, sweating his brains out. He's going to say, why am I, why am I doing this? What This doesn't make any sense. And some people just like that. They want to live in the Stepford Wives style thing. All the grass is green. All of it's edged perfectly. All of it's just boring. And, and so we wouldn't get 100%, but I bet you would get half. And what's better for America? What's better for our people? And what's better if we ever end up in a nightmare doomsday scenario of an economic collapse or even just a massive economic shift. And that's the minimum that's coming, guys. The minimum that's coming is a massive economic shift, day of wrecking, massive unemployment. Somebody just sent me a thing today. I won't go deep into it, but I talked about the death of retail and the peep and the number of retail outlets closed this year already. It's frightening. 250, I think, Staples stores? Staples, the office supply store? This place is, like, you, you, every time you turn a rock over, there's another one. Well, apparently not so much anymore. Staples is just, 
They're not going to go away. It's going to be a website. You need a lot of people for that. Just what automation and technology are doing to the employment space alone is going to drastically reduce the need for people to work. And that's good and bad. No one wants to work. Not the way that I'm talking about. I mean, who really wants to go to work eight hours a day, stand behind a cash register, take items, put them across a barcode scanner, ask a person for money, and do it again, 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 and do it again. And then, like, you get a break, and you're not doing it, so you kind of talk to one of your other employees, and some manager comes out and goes, Hey, you're not paid to talk. Well, actually, I thought I was paid to talk. I was supposed to help customers. Is that a customer? No, but there's no customers right now. What are you doing? Go over there and do something and pretend you're working. Who wants that? And and we've created a society with so many meaningless jobs that that's what you get. You get four people doing the job of one and then being yelled at for not doing enough even when there's nothing to do. That can only go on for so long, and this stuff is gradually coming to an end. Some of you guys are really concerned with peak oil. Uh, I don't think that peak oil is not real. I just think that some of you have accelerated the timeline of the countdown to zero way too fast. And there's a lot more energy resources left than, than some people would lead you to believe that, that, that work in scare and fear tactics. Um, but the fact is, sooner or later, we're going to deal with the fact that you, you don't just get oil for nothing forever. And as that happens, how important is it going to be that we have localized food production? So if you really think it's coming soon, then you really need to do this. If you really think it's coming eventually, you start needing to laying the framework so that the future generations have the framework so that they can deal with it. But there's a lot of things that can take away your energy uh, output, even temporarily. Cuba is a good example of this. They were so dependent on foreign oil and conventional um farming practices, they were growing almost none of their own food. They were using Russian money to pay for fuel, and they were using Russian money to pay for fertilizer, and they were growing almost 100% for export, and then they were buying the food they actually ate with import, and then, gee, who would have guessed it? The Soviet Union fell apart, and you know Castro basically was left with his ass hanging out to dry, and, and Russia said, we can't afford you anymore. Bye-bye now. There's other ways that we could end up with a shortage of, of energy or a, a, an extremely expensive cost to energy. In all of these scenarios, whether you're, you're laid off from work, need to sell your house, the end of oil has actually come, the zombies have marched, whatever, a backyard set up in this perennial type of system is an incredible asset. And it, it, to, to me... I have nothing against gardening. I like gardening. I'll always grow some tomatoes and some squash and, you know, some peppers and things like that. But it's a lot of work to grow a big garden. It's a little work to grow a big backyard orchard. And I'd rather do a little work than a lot of work and get a lot more food. And one of the biggest things that you get out of this type of a, of an urban design is you get an incredible variety, and an incredibly long season. Some of the things will start to fruit and produce like strawberries in, in, in early to mid-spring. And some of the things like later apple varieties, you're all the way out into September or October, 
persimmons, some of the persimmons are holding fruit into winter. So you can have this incredibly diverse variety of production over nine or ten months. And, and some of the stuff is good keeping stuff. Some of the apples and pears, for instance, will keep well. So you can put some of those up. And then you can start adding preservation techniques like jams, jellies, uh, alcohol, things like that, to extending it even further. So that you could be sitting down eating some cherry or having, how about a glass on a cold February day? Of just simply you get some high-end vodka, you fill a jar halfway with ch pitted cherries, and you fill that jar with vodka, and you cap that off in, in like August or September when you've picked those cherries, and you just set it in the darkness of a cupboard and leave it there. And, you know, you don't swallow it down like swill. But on a cold February day, sit down with a little snifter of that. Or do the same thing with brandy, cherry brandy. And just have a little sip of that. And then take in the depths of winter, that little aperitif, and think about the spring that's coming. And let that cherry carry you, that cherry essence carry you into the spring. And if you don't drink alcohol, well... You know, maybe you do a cherry extract and mix it with a little bit of, like, ginger ale. There's there's all types of ways to do these things. And, and this is just a better way psychologically to exist than taking care of grass. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.